Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Shabbat Shalom. We are beginning a brand new series today uh, on Sefer Daniel, on the book of Daniel. Uh, the book of Daniel sweeps from all the way from the Babylonian exile to the second coming of the Messiah. Daniel gives us this panorama of the history of the world. But at the same time, it's also an immensely practical book. In fact, we read this in 2 Peter 3.11. Since you know all these things will come to pass, what sort of people ought you to be in holiness and godliness? Having insight into the future which Daniel gives us, but having no bearing on the present, well, that's useless. Speculating on what's going to happen, which has no effect on what is happening, is meaningless. Peter says, if you know what's going to come to pass, it will change the way you live now. In fact, we read in 1 John 3.3 that if we have this hope in us, we purify ourselves. If we really believe that this is going to come to pass, it changes the way we live. So let's look at the book of Daniel in this light. Uh, The book of Daniel is divided into two major sections. One is written in Hebrew. The other is written in Aramaic, the only book of the Bible which is this much Aramaic, which is the language of the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. The Hebrew portion is chapters 8 to 12, and it deals with the Jewish people and the city of Yerushalayim under Jewish control. The Aramaic portion, chapters 2 to 7, deal with the Gentile nation's dominance over Jerusalem and the Jewish people. So if it's in Hebrew, it's talking about Israel and Jerusalem under Jewish control. If it's in Aramaic, it's talking about the time of the Gentiles when the nations uh, control the land of Israel. Uh, Daniel, like Ezekiel, was one of the Jewish captives who lived in Babylon beginning about the year 606 uh, B.C. Uh, God told the prophet Jeremiah that he would bring Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, against Israel if they refused to repent. We read this in Yirmiyahu, Jeremiah 25, 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I'll send you Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant, calls him my servant, uh, and bring him against the land and its inhabitants and destroy them. Well, for how long? Jeremiah 25, 11. And this whole land will be desolation and a horror and served the king of Babylon 70 years. Israel had become a decadent nation, given over to pleasure, greed, violence, immorality. The parallels to our own nation are chilling. We too are in desperate need of godly leaders if we're to survive. Daniel's name means God will judge, One of the lessons of the book of Daniel is that God will judge evil and sin. And I want us to note that Daniel himself was not personally guilty of these sins, and yet he suffered too. There is corporate responsibility for the people of God and for nations. So we need to pray for our nation, uh, and we need to pray until we can become a godly influence in its midst, because the Lord deals with us corporately, not just individually. We are our brother's keepers. We suffer, yes, for our own sins, but also for the sins of others. But the Lord is also a God of mercy. 
And in the midst of judgment, he remembers mercy. He remembers Daniel, and he, and he raises him up for such a time as this. So let's start look, reading the, the entire first chapter of Daniel, Daniel 1, verses 1 to 21. And can I get some more light up here, please? Uh, in the third year of the reign of uh, Jehoiakim, uh, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylon, Babylonia, and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his court, of, uh, the chief of his court officials, to bring him into to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family uh, and from the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well informed, quick to understand and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. Uh, they were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those chosen were some from Judah, uh, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of the Lord my king, who's assigned, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young man your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the other young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any other young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. Uh, and, and at the... Uh, at the end of this time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked to them. He found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than, than all the, the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Amen. And I'm going to move this out of the way here, if I don't mind. Excuse me. All right, thank you. This is an account of a remarkable man. He was one of the best and brightest of Israel. Uh, he was from a family of high social status. Uh, he was physically well-built and handsome. Uh, try to picture maybe in our own day, maybe someone like Orlando Bloom or, or Bride Pitt, only Jewish. <laughs> but 
Daniel was bright. He, he was quick to understand. He had a high degree of what's called practical intelligence, uh, people smarts. Uh, he was devoted to God and God's people. He would have had all the hopes and dreams and aspirations that young men like him have. Uh, back in Judah, his future would have been bright. Uh, the whole world was in front of him. Uh, he'd go to a great school. Uh, then he'd got, go on to a successful career, make a great marriage, raise a, a, a wonderful family, occupy a prominent place in Israeli society, do great things for God and for God's people. But life didn't turn out the way he planned. There's a whole world of heartbreak in Daniel 1.1, which simply says, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. You know, God had made a presence to our forefather, Abraham. Look at Genesis 12, 2 to 3. God promises him, I'll make you into a great nation, and I'll bless you. I'll make your name great, and you'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I'll curse. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. That promise had sustained our people for century after century. Israel reached its peak under David and Solomon, but then there was a long, slow decline into apostasy. The kingdom was divided into the northern kingdom of Israel, which was destroyed by Assyria, and the southern kingdom of Judah. Then when Daniel was just a teenager, Nebuchadnezzar comes and destroys the southern kingdom. And all that's left of the independent Jewish state is destroyed. Temples destroyed in 586 BC, its holy objects taken away even before then, and now displayed in the temples of the pagan Babylonian gods. Daniel would spend the rest of his entire life in Babylon, serving an alien king. He'd lost his culture, his family, the relationships he cherished. He'd never speak a foreign language. He would never go home. He'd even lose his, he even loses his Hebrew name. You know, in ancient Mideast culture, your name represented your, your significance. Uh, it signified your character. Daniel and his three friends were each given uh, new names. We'll put them on the overhead. Daniel means God is my judge. It's now changed to Belteshazzar, Belteshazzar the keeper of Bells or, or Baal's treasure. Mishael, who is what God is, is changed to Meshach, who is what Aku is. Hananiah, my Lord is gracious from Chen, graciousness, becomes Shadrach, the shining light of Wak, the, the sun god. And Azariah, from Azair, uh, the Lord is my help, becomes uh, Abednego, the servant of Nebo, the god of fire. Their original Hebrew names reminded them they belonged to God. The new names Nebuchadnezzar gives them was his way of saying, you now have a new king and new gods you must serve. Give yourself to, to, to me. Allow Babylon now to define your character. You see, every time Daniel heard his real name mentioned, Daniel, God is my judge, it was reminded that the Lord will set things right. The Lord will see that the justice is done. But now, he's not Daniel anymore. The Lord was not setting things right. In fact, it looked like his whole promise was shattered. So what do you do when you end up in Babylon? Because you will. Babylon's where you find yourself when life doesn't turn out the way you planned. Maybe it happened uh, when a relationship or even a marriage that you had all your dreams for ends. Maybe it happens when you have your great vocational hopes die. Maybe it happens when someone you know and loves wounds you deeply or even betrays you. 
Maybe it happens when you realize this deep prayer you cherished will never be answered in the way you want. You find yourself in Babylon, caught off from the life you wanted and planned on, and you may never go home. And worst of all, you wonder, does God even know? Does God even care? How could he, God let this happen? Has he forgotten his promises? Does he even notice? What do you do when you find yourself, like Daniel, in Babylon? Researchers have studied people who experience deep suffering, crisis, trauma. For example, POWs from Korea or Vietnam, or the hostages held in Iran from the American embassy. Individuals today who have to live in just terrible places like Chicago or Seattle or LA or San Francisco. <laughs> and these studies find that a lot of people are just defeated by these difficult ordeals, just withered in spirit. But there are some people who don't just survive these traumas, but actually enlarge their capacity to handle problems and strengthen their ability to persist and to endure and be creative and tenacious. So that in the end, they haven't just survived, they've grown, uh, they've thrived. They've actually grown through the trauma. Researchers identify these folks as what they call resilient. They have resiliency, a capacity to, to bounce back, uh, even thrive in challenging, difficult circumstances. And there are certain common characteristics, qualities of spirit, that tend to mark resilient people. And when we turn to Daniel, we see in Daniel one of the most spiritually resilient people in history. Uh, at the beginning of his life, he's lost everything. And yet with God's help in Babylon, Daniel learns not just to survive, but to thrive. How does he do this? We see the first quality in verse 8, Daniel 1, verse 8. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the king's food, the royal food and wine. And the overhead, uh, next slide. Spiritually resilient people resolve to honor their deepest values. They refuse to live as just passive victims of their circumstances beyond their control. They refuse to compromise or to betray their deepest commitments. They resolve to honor their core moral and spiritual values, not to defile themselves, to honor the Lord. Now, in many ways, this verse 8 is the hinge point of the whole story, the whole book of Daniel. Everything turns here. Because up until verse 8, it's the Babylonians who've determined everything. They're in the driver's seat. Nebuchadnezzar determines to conquer Israel. He determines to, to cart off its sacred objects and its top citizens. He determines to enroll the best and brightest youth in his leadership academy, in his well, university of paganism, uh, to assimilate into Babylonian culture. Uh, and the dean of this school determines their new names, uh, their identities, uh, their language, the menu. Uh, they be fed this rich food and wine from the king's table. Uh, and the easiest thing for Daniel is to just give up. Uh, and become uh, Zedekiah, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, uh, Zedekiah. He rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. Earlier, Zedekiah had been given two different prophecies from two different prophets. One said he would never see Babylon. The other said he'd die in Babylon. So King Zedekiah, he mocked these prophets, he ignored them, because he saw two contradictory messages. Well, when Zedekiah rebels, Nebuchadnezzar has his sons killed before his eyes, and then has Zedekiah's eyes put out. The last thing he saw were his sons being killed by Nebuchadnezzar. 
and then he lost his eyes. And then he was taken captive to Babylon and he died there, thus fulfilling both prophecies. You heard of leaders with hands on or hands off, you know, management styles? Nebuchadnezzar had a heads off management style. <laughs> if people crossed him, he cut their heads off. Maybe you've had a tough boss who, who terminated you. Well, when Nebuchadnezzar terminated you, he really terminated you. <laughs> this is who Daniel is dealing with. But Daniel, de Daniel determines not to defile himself. He remembers his name. He doesn't view himself as some kind of helpless pawn. Uh, he resolves in his heart. There's just this magnificent courage and initiative here. And a lot of practical wisdom. Spiritually resilient people are this way. They resolve to honor God. They do whatever it takes to do that. Uh, they don't give in to sin or to outside pressure uh, or to temptation or to compromise. So Daniel, he goes to the dean of the school and he makes this request. But the dean says, if I say yes to you and you end up looking worse and lacking energy, the king, he'll have my head. But Daniel still doesn't give up. He then goes to the next level down. He goes to the guard, and he proposes this experiment. Let's try this, my diet, our diet, for 10 days, uh, and then you be the judge. Daniel exhibits this amazing initiative, uh, courage, chutzpah, <laughs> faith, that God will work in his life, and God does. Daniel and his three friends, they thrive on this vegetarian diet. They go to the head of the class. He becomes the valedictorian. But note that this only happens when everything looked, everything looked lost. Uh, and he was up against very powerful forces. But yet Daniel resolved in his heart not to, not to betray his deepest values. He resolved in his heart to honor God, not to compromise. We live in a world of compromise. Uh, we tend to hold our convictions until it goes and gets against and gets in the way of our comfort or our ease. You know, we have moral standards as long as it doesn't prevent us from doing something we really want to do. Sadly, if we need to compromise on divine principles to accomplish our goals, we do. And it's often very subtle. Uh, we claim convictions about sin until it's committed by us or by our spouse or our children. We say we're against corruption until it's committed by our boss or by our favorite politician. We have high moral standards until our lusts tempt us into unholy relationships or actions or fantasies. We rationalize uh, or for honesty until a little, a little bit of dishonesty will save us a lot of money. But in 1 John 2.15, we're told, love not the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And James 4.4 4 says, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity against God? You cannot be a friend of the world and a friend of God. And there's no better example of the character of an uncompromising spirit than Daniel. And remember, Daniel at this time is just a teenager. He's probably about 14 or 15 years old. The Babylonians put him through three years of school to brainwash him just like our secular colleges and universities do today to brainwash our kids. Uh, our college's goal is, is to take away your faith, uh, rob you of your heritage, and to transform you into a godless, atheistic, humanistic, secular, uh, relativistic, progressive, woke socialist. But Daniel will not give in. 
Now, how many 14-year-olds today would have that kind of character? He was just a kid. He was away from home. Nobody around to check up on him. He had every reason to compromise, uh, you know, to, to, to get along. But he didn't. He had integrity. He had real character. And he must have had godly parents who instilled these values in him. The key to Daniel being willing to take a stand against a pagan society was his unwillingness to compromise the absolutes of God. He would not defile himself. We need that same kind of character. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Proverbs is saying, guard your heart, because otherwise your life, uh, it's going to be easily corrupted. That's how I am young people. Guard your hearts, married couples. Guard your hearts from anyone who's not your spouse. Daniel guarded his heart. Daniel was not ashamed of his God or his faith in God, even in the midst of a pagan society. Proverbs 29, 25, the fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. Yeshua says in Mark 8, 38, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him, the son of man, shall also be ashamed. But Daniel was not ashamed of his God. Uh, he never compromised. He could not be bought. Uh, this reminds me of the famous West Point cadet's prayer. I'm gonna, I'm gonna put it out on the overhead. This one, the West Point. It says, Lord, make us choose the harder right instead of the easier wrong. And never be content with half truth when whole truth can be won. And that was a courage that's born of loyalty to all that's noble and worthy, that scorns to compromise with vice and injustice, and knows no fear when right and truth are in jeopardy. Amen. An uncompromising character never gives up, never gives in. Daniel's confidence was in God. Sin brings doubt. Purity brings confidence. Daniel led a holy, pure life and would not defile himself. And so his faith in God was great. His purity brought confidence. When your heart is pure, there is nothing to fear. For if God is for you, who can be against you? Daniel was a young man of principle and conviction. He didn't just have faith. He lived it. His relationship with the Lord was demonstrated by his actions. In a word, he would not compromise with the world. And so he died of just mere vegetables and water, blessed by God, proved to be more nourishing than all the rich food and wine lavished on his peers. The world offers every type of food, every type of, of enticement and, and enjoyment, but its allurements produce only fleeting pleasure. They don't produce the lasting fruits of righteousness. They don't quench the thirst of our souls. Uh, that which appeals to our senses is often an illusion. All that glitters is not gold. From Daniel, we learn that the Lord is looking for a life of devotion uh, and holiness uh, and purity. Daniel placed the word of God uh, even above the words of the king. He refused to be conformed to the world. 
Rather, he proposed uh, to obey and purpose in his heart to serve the Lord. Again, any cost. So I want you to ask yourself, how much different am I than the world? Other than that I go to shul on Shabbat, would anyone looking at my life see a difference between me and the world? Paul says in Romans 12, verse 1, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, you present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So let me ask you, is there anywhere you're getting tangled up uh, in life? Uh, consider this story. It happened at a traffic light here in Dallas. This huge burly guy uh, gunned the engine of this monster Harley Davidson motorcycle. He had a black bandana on his head, a uh, leather jacket with biker emblems, uh, skull and crossbone tattoos up and down his, his burly arms. His bike bore the emblem of a, a black widow spider. And he, he waited at the light, and as he was waiting, this frail elderly man on a lime green moped <laughs> pulls up. The ringy-dingy of the moped was drowned out by the roar of the Harley. <laughs> Boy, that's some kind of motorcycle you got there, the old man croaked. Mind if I take a closer look? Scro uh, scowling, the biker says, yeah, if I turn to your crank, old timer. So the old man leans his face over the bike, examines every inch of it. Looking up, he says, I bet that motorcycle goes fast. And as soon as the light changed, the biker decided to show this old geezer what a real chopper could do. He gives it full throttle. Within 30 seconds, the speedometer hits 200 miles an hour. The biker laughs to himself, but suddenly he notices this dot in the rearview mirror, and the dot is growing larger. Something's gaining on him. What could it possibly be? And the next moment it flashes past him so fast he can't even get a good look at it. It disappears over the horizon, but then it whips around and comes right back at him. And it zips past him, and as it's zipping past him, he notices the rider. It's the old man on the green lime moped. <laughs> How is this possible? The biker, he looks again in the, in the mirror, and there's that speck again, coming back at him, growing larger. In seconds, the moped slams into the Harley-Davidson. The collision destroys both bikes. You can hear the crash for miles. The biker slowly extricates himself from, from the wreckage of his Harley, but the old man fares even worse. He lays groaning beneath this now black and smoky remnant of his moped. The biker, moved with compassion, says, is there anything I can do for you? Yes. Can you please unhook my suspenders from your handlebars? <laughs> now, you and I would never purposely hook our suspenders to anything dangerous. Yet many of you might be willing to look over for a closer look. <laughs> Lean over. The world around us is littered with the mangled lives of men and women who never intended to get hooked. They only wanted a closer look at the shiny colors of some forbidden sin. The husband who never intended to lose his family, but decided it was okay to, to flirt around the boundaries of adultery. And is now pulling himself from the wreckage of, of a smoking marriage. He got tangled up in Babylon. The business person who thought that cutting ethical corners would make his rise to the top quicker. 
Now he's on a collision course waiting to happen. So many people who never intended to sabotage their marriage or their friendships or their career, they just drift into lust or resentment or bitterness or addiction or greed, and they suffer a relational train wreck that's destroying their life. Sometimes we get tangled up in, in more subtle enemies, pride, hurry, busyness, success, outbursts of anger, uh, taking up other people's offenses, unforgiveness, gossip, jealousy, lack of self-control, an improper or, or a questionable relationship. If you can relate to any of this, God is calling you today to be a Daniel, to resolve in your heart to repent, to cling to Yeshua, to resist the evil one. Because spiritually, to become spiritually resilient people. Because we all live in Babylon to one degree or another. So we all need to learn how, how to survive and to thrive in a hostile world. We all live in the world, uh, a world that will, that will try to tempt us uh, or to intimidate us into settling for less than God's best. So resolve this day to serve the Lord. No matter the cost, do you need to end some relationship that's, that's dishonoring God? End it. Do you need to, to repent of an unethical business practice? Repent. Do you need to forgive someone you're harboring an offense against? Forgive them. Reach out to them. Practice Matthew 18 and Matthew 5. Leave your gift at the altar and be reconciled to your brother or sister. Do you need to reorder your time and your priorities? Do so. Cut out all the hours you spend on the internet and Facebook and social media. This is your day. Resolve in your heart. Because God is preparing you now with these little tests so you'll be ready for the day of great testing that's yet to come. And we'll see in future weeks later on, Daniel's friends, uh, they're, they're commanded to bow down to the statue of the king uh, or be thrown into a fiery furnace. Great test yet to come. And they say, okay, throw us into the furnace. But we're not going to bow. And later on, Daniel is told to stop praying to his, to his God or be thrown into the lion's den. And Daniel says, throw me to the lions. I will not stop praying to my God. You see, if Daniel and his friends had not drawn the line from the very beginning and had declared that their deepest allegiance, where it belonged, they never would have had the strength later on to face the furnace or the lions. Some of you have hooked your suspenders to the wrong things. Resolve today, I will honor God. I will not hand over my one and only life that God has given me to any power in Babylon. Not to any person, not to any relationship, not to any job or any habit or any force, uh, any schedule. I resolve in my heart to honor and serve Yeshua, my Lord. And the overhead, that's number one. Number two, spiritually resilient people are committed to living in community. For Daniel, he found this little small group uh, with Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They function kind of like a small group, a home group, a community. They go through Babylonian school together. They studied and prayed and faced decisions together. They one day faced the furnace together. Uh, they one day helped to rule in the court of Babylon together. This one small group of devoted believers would help change the course of a nation. 
You see, when you live in Babylon, which we all do, you will not survive or thrive outside of community. You just won't. You know, few captives suffered more than this Vice uh, Admiral James Stockdale. He served 2,714 days as a POW in Vietnam. On one occasion, his, captor, his captors shackled his arms and legs, left him in the glaring sun for three blistering days, while the guards beat him repeatedly to prevent him from being able to sleep. After one beating, Stockdale heard this towel snapping out a code that the POWs had devised, a GBUJS. God bless you, James Stockdale. The POWs, the briefest experience of community, of being connected, became a life or death deal. Their ingenuity and devotion to making community happen, despite unbelievable obstacles, it defies belief. For example, if one man walked by another one's cell, uh, he'd drag his sandals and some code to send a message to him. Uh, uh, men sent messengers uh, to their comrades through, through noises they'd make, uh, through shaking out their blankets, uh, by pelching or snoring, blowing their noses, and by making other bodily noises I won't describe, but are usually mastered by 10-year-old boys. <laughs> and this is so ironic if you think about it. Because where community is difficult, people will move heaven and earth to make it happen. But where it's really available, readily available, we typically won't bother to devote the adequate time and effort to do it. We need to make building community here at S. Klein a priority, to become a spiritual family uh, that cares about each other, that, that shares life together. And this takes effort, especially because we live so far apart from one another. Uh, this is why, for example, we, if you were here last week, we passed out this questionnaire on, on home groups for you to fill out. If you didn't fill one out, you know, please see Dan Boron and he'll give you one today. We need to make these upcoming new home groups a uh, priority for growing community, uh, for discipleship, for accountability, for praying for one another, for meeting needs, uh, for worship, for growing in the gifts of the Spirit, for evangelism outreach, for, for leadership training, so much more. Now, this is going to take effort and, and commitment from all of us. It will not happen by itself. It will require sacrifice and a willingness to be open and vulnerable with one another and to treat each other with respect and dignity and, above all, with love, where it's safe to show weakness and need because we're for one another and we uphold each other. So... Let us know if you by this questionnaire if you're willing to attend a home group or, or host a home group or lead a home group. You see, people need to hear code. Not just hostages or POWs. People in this room need to hear code. Let someone know today, I'm glad you're here. You matter to me. You bless me. Spiritually resilient people need community in order to remain resilient. On the overhead, uh, third. Spiritually resilient people remember that their life and even their suffering has meaning and purpose in the eyes of God. Researchers say that the, the factor that causes people to give up is not when their suffering gets more intense, but when they believe their suffering has no meaning or purpose. It's not the intensity of the suffering, it's the meaninglessness of it. Suicide notes rarely speak of failing health or rejection, or finances, or even physical pain. Instead, they say things like, 
there's no point in going on. There's no reason for me to keep living. You see, Daniel was about to discover something in Babylon he had never would have known if he had lived his whole life in Israel like he planned. He's about to discover that there is someone at work in Babylon. There's one character in the story, besides Daniel and his three friends, and Nebuchadnezzar and his servants, who's at work. See if you can spot it in the text. Daniel 1.17. Uh, in the overhead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. Daniel 1.9. Now God caused the official to show uh, favor and sympathy to Daniel. Daniel 1.2. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands. Who's the character that keeps getting mentioned over and over again? It's God. The writer of the story is convinced that God is at work right from the start. He knows what many Israelites don't know. He's convinced that even the defeat of Judah and the destruction of the temple were not random, meaningless events. God is not asleep. The Lord of hosts has not forgotten his promises or broken his covenant. God is up to something in Babylon, even in the place of great suffering. God turns out, it turns out that God loves even Babylon. Now, as we're going to see in the weeks ahead, the Lord even cares about Nebuchadnezzar. Whatever you suffer this day or you suffer in the future, Messiah is there with you. I want to close by relating a true story about a woman in a convalescent hospital that a Messianic rabbi used to visit back when he was in Bible school. Uh, this this state-run convalescent hospital is not a pleasant place. It's large, understaffed, overfilled with, with, with senile, helpless, lonely people waiting to die. It's dark. Smells of sickness and stale urine. Uh, I went there, this rabbi writes, uh, as part of my Bible school service internship requirement. One day I was walking the hallways looking for a few who were alive and alert enough to receive a flower and a few words of encouragement. The hallway contained some of the worst cases, strapped onto carts or into wheelchairs and looking completely helpless. As I neared the end of the hallway, I saw this old woman strapped in a wheelchair. Her face was an absolute horror. The empty stare and the white pupils told me she was blind. The large hearing aid told me she was half deaf. One side of her face was being eaten by cancer. Uh, there was a discolored and running sore covering part of one cheek that had distorted her jaw so that she was constantly drooling. The, the new nurses were always assigned to feed her as part of their initiation. Mabel was 89 years old. Had been bedridden, blind, nearly deaf, and alone for 25 years. I didn't know why, but felt led to speak to her. I put a flower in her hand and I said, here's a flower for you. Happy Mother's Day. She held the flower to her face, tried to smell it. Then surprisingly, she said, thank you. It's lovely, but can I give it to someone else? I can't see it. You know, I'm blind. So I pushed a wheelchair down the hall. Mabel held out the, out the flower to someone and said, Here, this is from Jesus, Yeshua. That's when it first began to dawn on me. This is not an ordinary human being. Mabel had a variety of, of illnesses, causing constant headaches and backaches and stomach aches, in addition to her cancer. Her three roommates were all human vegetables. 
who screamed occasionally uh, but never talked. They often soiled their bedclothes, and because the hospital was understaffed, the stench was overpowering at times. Mabel and I became best friends. I went to see her once a week for the next three years, long after my internship was over. Some days I'd read her from the Bible, and when I'd pause, she would continue reciting the passage from memory, word for word. Other days we'd sing these old hymns together. She knew all the words of all the old songs. For Mabel, these were not just exercises in memory. She would often stop mid-hymn and make a comment about the lyrics that she considered particularly relevant to her situation. I never heard her speak a word of, of loneliness or pain, except when she put a certain stress on various lines in certain hymns. It wasn't long before I had a sense of, of wonder. I even write down the things she said. During finals, my mind was pulled in a thousand directions. Uh, I had to think about so many different things. And then it struck me, what does Mabel have to think about? Hour after hour, day after day, week after week, never even knowing if it's night or day. So I asked her, Mabel, what do you think about when you lie here? She says, I think about my Jesus, my Yeshua. I sat there and thought how difficult it was for me to concentrate on Yeshua even, even for five minutes. I asked, what do you think about Yeshua? I think about how good he's been to me. He's been awful good to me, you know. Lots of folks wouldn't care much for what I think. Lots of folks think I'm old-fashioned. I don't care. I'd rather have Yeshua. He's all the world to me. And then Mabel began to sing this old hymn, Jesus is all the world to me, my life, my joy, my all. My strength from day to day, without him I would fall. When I'm sad, to him I go. No other can cheer me so. When I'm sad, he makes me glad. He's my all in all. This is not fiction. A human being actually lived like this, full of, full of the spirit of Messiah. I know, he writes. I knew her. How could she do it? Seconds ticked. Minutes crawled. So did days and weeks and months and years of pain. Without human company, without explanation for why it was happening. And as she lay there singing hymns, how could she do it? Mabel had something that you and I don't have much of. She had power. Lying there in that bed, unable to move, unable to see, hardly able to hear, unable to talk to anyone, Yet she had incredible power. Her spirit soared. Mabel was very old and suffering in Babylon, but she persevered. Mabel's race has now been won. It's now been run. Her story is now done. Your story is still being written. So is mine. Thank you. Here's what you need to know. God was with Daniel in what seemed like a God-forsaken place. He became the highest advisor to the most powerful king in the, in the world. Just like Joseph with Pharaoh. God was with Mabel 
This 89-year-old woman, she died alone and unknown in an obscure nursing home. But today, thousands of people all over the world have either heard or read her story. They've been given this amazing gift by this woman who thought that she died alone and forgotten. God is with you. Wherever, whoever you are, whatever Babylon you find yourself in, we'll see how this was with Daniel and his friends in the upcoming weeks. Because God is up to something in Babylon. So resolve to honor him. For the Lord knows you by name. And he is writing the story of your life that one day will become a beautiful hymn. Amen. Let's stand and pray. The music team to come on up. Hallelujah. Father, we thank you today for these insights from Daniel. Like Daniel, Lord, we want to be resilient. Not just to survive, but to thrive. To thrive through times of trauma and disappointment and failure and even persecution. Like Daniel, help us, Lord, never to compromise. Not to compromise our values, our biblical standards. Help us to have an uncompromising spirit. To not defile ourselves with the temptations of the world. The, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. Lord, we agree with what you say in your word, that, that friendship with the world is enmity against you. Help us to ever keep the hope of your kingdom before us, which helps to keep us pure. We resolve in our hearts to honor you, Yeshua. Lord, help us not to be conformed to Babylon, not to be conformed to the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds uh, through your word, through worship, through prayer, through the encouragement of fellow believers and community with us like Daniel had with his three friends. Because we know we cannot survive without community. Lord, help us not to hook our lives to any power in Babylon. Not to any person or relationship or job or habit that's not of you. And finally, like Daniel, help us to remember, Lord, that our life, even our suffering, has meaning and purpose in your eyes whether we currently see it or not. Because we serve a God who suffered. We serve a God with wounds. And so we know that you understand and you care. And we pray this in your name, Yeshua. Amen.